0: Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. So my wife and I celebrate Valentine's Day a little differently now, you know, three kids. We've been married 16 years, which is amazing. Uh thank thank you, Haley. I appreciate that. Uh, Now, the rest of you missed it. It's cool. Whatever. (laughs) But we've been married 16 years. And as we're talking about it, um, our most memorable Valentine's Day was our first ever Valentine's Day together. And because we dated long distance, I was in Chicago. She was in, uh, at San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly. And then she was in Sweden for a year and I was in Chicago. So the minute she got home from Sweden, I said, I'm going to put a ring on her finger. Let's get married. We got married December 21st, 2002, um, 16 years, whatever. Add added up. Yeah. Um, and so our very first Valentine's Day was In fact, our first Valentine's Day as a married couple as well. So no pressure at all, but I was really excited about Valentine's Day, and so I did the best I could to create this romantic, amazing moment. We lived in downtown Chicago on the sixth floor. This apartment is awesome. Picked her up. She was working at Starbucks at the time, brought her home, and I got her the best romantic uh, record you could find at the time. It was Nora Jones's new uh, album. (laughs) Some of you don't even know who that is anymore. That's awesome. And, And, you know, she came. Home. There's candles. Nora Jones album. There's a handwritten note because I don't type personal notes like that. And uh, you know a chocolate. And I'm like, okay, we're gonna go out to a, a you know dinner together. It's romantic. And so we're walking downtown Chicago. There's this Avenue Rush Avenue Rush Street. It's an incredible street. All these. Great restaurants. I mean, just there's a line outside the door. It's February. Line outside the door of all of them. In fact, one of the lines had Norm from Cheers. Anybody know Norm? Like, it's so packed. He's waiting outside to get in line as well. And we're like, what's up, Norm? And we kept going. And she's looking around going, oh, this will be amazing. I can't wait. What place are we going to go to? And I stop and I said, we're here. And she says, we're here where? Well, where we're going to eat. And she said, what do you mean? And I'm like, at Johnny Rockets." (laughs) that was not where she wanted to go to eat on her very first valentine's day ever now to be fair let me give you a little backstory from my side of it she had always told me how much she liked the 50s and diner like that whole you know era I'm like What's more 50s than Johnny Rockets, you know? Um, We're poor. We're broke. We have no money. It's not like we could afford any of those restaurants we passed. And so I'm like, Johnny Rockets is in our budgets. It's 50s style. This is going to be perfect. And she looked up, and she's amazing. She's incredible. She did her very best. And, you know, she didn't want to show that she was disappointed, but I just saw her eyes just kind of drop. And so we go in with all the other grandparents and grandkids, and um, (laughs) the. And sit down, and my um, the waiter for us or waitress, she actually went to my school, and she's like, "Oh, there's a Valentine's Day special." I didn't know anyone would really use it. <laughs> I'm like, "Not helping, thank you very much." Uh, and so we sit down and have the Valentine's Day special. It's amazing, and and over the course of I don't know if it was like 30 minutes or 45 minutes or hour is a short short dinner. Um, the conversation got progressively worse to no communication as, like, I was getting frustrated that she didn't like it and that she was frustrated that she, you know, didn't understand how important this day was. And all of a sudden, you know, what started out is this hot romantic night turned into something very cold. So, like, as a newly married man, my image of how that night was going to end was romantic. Let's, let's leave it at that. And by the end of the dinner, I was just hopeful to get... A milkshake i was like i'm like that's that's about the tops of what i'm going to get out of this night and i said okay well she was clearly wanting to leave and i'm like can i at least get a milkshake <laughs> bad idea uh and she said um no let's go which that's was at that time especially that's pretty bold for her and so i was like um okay Our very first Valentine's Day, we went to bed early, facing opposite directions, both incredibly mad at each other. And 50, I think six days into this marriage, I ran into a myth that I had bought into about marriage. And in fact, it's pervasive in our culture, in the way we think about romantic relationships, is the myth of marriage goes something like this: When I find the right person, then everything will work out right." I remember laying in that bed going like, "Oh my goodness, did I marry the wrong person?" Because when you find the right person, we just subtly believe this. It gets kind of built in, woven into the things that we think about romance and we think about you know all the movies that we see. When I find the right person, everything will work out right, which means if it's not working out right, they must be wrong. They must be the wrong person. It gets translated this way, if they truly are the right person, then they won't Make me change. Like, like, if they're really the right person, I won't have to change at all. They'll just accept me for me, which is not true, by the way. Um, for those of you who are thinking, like, oh, you just have to accept me. No, you're a selfish, sinful person, and you married a selfish, sinful person. There's a lot of growth and refinement that needs to happen. When I find the right person, everything will work out right. And We say things like this, when I married the right person... All my problems will suddenly vanish. And so many step into a marriage relationship and have those Valentine's Day moments and are completely disillusioned and feel helpless and hopeless. We're continuing our controversial Jesus series. Last week we talked about Jesus and sexuality. I encourage you, please go back and listen to it if you didn't, where he talked about lust and adultery. This morning, where Jesus is continuing the conversation as he talks about marriage and divorce. And in this conversation, he's actually addressing a very specific problem in their day that men were engaging in in the marriage relationship. And, and it will begin to help us understand this biblical vision of marriage, or at least God's vision of marriage. And so if you got your Bibles, if you'd open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, let's look at what does Jesus say about marriage. And um, what I love about this is um, Jesus starts this way. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces wife Must give her a certificate of divorce. There's a a law in Deuteronomy that talks about giving a certificate of divorce. In the Hebrew, it was uh, known as a get. Uh, In our day, it's very complex and, you know, takes a lot of um, lawyers. In their day, it was a single sentence that you would hand your wife. And it would go something like this. Lo, you are permitted to any man. The end. Done. Here you go. So says, it had been said, anyone who divorces wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces wife, what, for, except for sexual immorality, this is the Greek word pornea, it is the largest, kind of broadest scope word for anything outside the bounds of God's defined uh, for se- our sexuality. Uh, it's anything outside of God's design uh, for that makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, and here Jesus, and because we don't fully understand the cultural context, and I'll unpack it in a second, he's actually protecting and uplifting women from being treated like trading cards in the flavor of the month. Here's what I mean by that. In their day, there's actually two uh, dominant camps, rabbinic traditions or rabbinic thoughts about divorce. Uh, The first was the house of Shammai, uh, and the second was the house of Hillel. The house of Shammai said, okay, here, what is the lowest common denominator for why you can get divorced? What is the reasoning? The house of Shammai said this. Rabbi Shammai said sexual immorality. It's what Jesus said. Anything that breaks the covenant sexually is the reason you can get divorced. The house of Hillel was much more popular in their day. In fact, the Pharisees bought into Rabbi Hillel's translation and interpretation of this, and this was the more common widespread understanding among men in their day. And the house of Hillel said this, if she spoiled your food, if she burnt your toast or your fish, if you found someone prettier, you can give her a note of divorce, if she no longer pleases you, really any and every reason and so men were treating women to be used and discarded and Jesus says that breaks the heart of God and violates his vision for marriage now when we think about and talk about divorce in the church recognize one there's many people who either have come from divorce home and this is a very weighty subject, those that have experienced them themselves, and then also in the church, and there's certain church traditions where you've experienced deep heartache and pain, even in how some some churches have interpreted this passage. Um, I Think about the story of my dad, and my dad was... came to know Jesus when he was 18 years old, Um, you know, following Jesus all his life. He's going, I think, getting his master's at the time and doing this campus ministry. He shows up to this Bible study, and there's this beautiful woman who'd been divorced and uh, hadn't Twin baby boys. And her story is that she got married really young, uh, pregnant, and the husband, her husband left her for a woman down the street, and she's just left out all on her own. Her boss leads her to the Lord and introduces her to this small group. She's showing up, growing in her faith. And my dad starts praying for this woman that she would find a husband for these, you know, for her and for the dad for these boys. And then all of a sudden, God started doing some things in his heart, and he's like, Oh my goodness, I, I have feelings for this woman and love begins to blossom and bloom and there's some people in his life that said this if you ever marry that woman God will never use your life thankfully he had some other wise people in his life as he got sought wise biblical counsel that said no chip you can marry her and that woman as you know is my mom And our family, and God's used his life tremendously. I don't know how many of you know him, but right now, over a million people listen to him on the radio preach the word of God. I think God is still using his life. And so, how do we understand what Jesus is teaching here? Because for some, you've been ostracized and shamed and shunned and even kicked out. And what is going on, and what is he teaching? And... To understand what Jesus is saying is, thankfully, this isn't all that he taught on marriage. He actually unpacks uh, this theology, if you will, of marriage um, more fully later on. In fact, if you are joining us and you've been reading with us in our um, Bible reading, uh, you know, that we're doing, you would have read Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus unpacks fully more his understanding and teaching on marriage and divorce. We pick it up in uh, chapter verse uh, 19, verse 3. If you uh, flip over to there, we'll spend the rest of our time here to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Really, what is the minimum condition for a justified divorce? Which rabbinic house are you a part of, Shammai or Hillel? And and so then Jesus says, and here's what I love, the way he responds, he's going like, wrong question. Like, your first question about marriage is how to get out of marriage, That's the wrong question. That's the wrong starting point. And let me give you a vision, God's vision for marriage. So he doesn't even answer that question. He just begins with God's vision for marriage. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female distinct here. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, that there's something in the marriage union that is deeply spiritual and God is a part of, let no one separate. And Jesus unpacks what later we would call an orthodox Christian vision of marriage. It's what we hold to at Awakening, that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman in holy covenant for life. Not for now, for life. And I even know as I talk about that, that for some, even as you're wrestling through sexuality and homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all those sort of things. And again, I'd encourage you to listen to our service uh, series uh, talk last week. But I love the way Jenny Allen put it when talking about marriage, and she's the founder of IF, and she wrote this on a blog post a couple years ago. Said if you disagree with that, this, this orthodox vision of a Christian marriage, uh, or you've yet to land, we are also deeply committed, speaking of the IF community, to building a safe place where you and all people uh, come, experience, and know Jesus and consider him. All people are welcome. But we just want to be clear. From the stage, we're going to give you the Bible and Jesus when you do come. Jesus paints this beautiful, powerful, holy, profound vision of marriage. And it's this, that God designed marriage to be a holy covenant and not a contract. We'll get to covenant in a second. Let's talk about contract. We have reduced the marriage relation to, to a contractual obligation. We, we get contracts. Contract says, if I do blank, then you will do X. If I do this, then, if, then you'll do this. And if you don't do this, then I'm out of my contract. This is what we do with our phone, right? Your cell phone, you get into a contract. They promise all this good and wonderful, you know, like unlimited data, all the tax, all these sort of things. And then there's these hidden fees that they didn't tell you about and these costs. And you're looking at your bill and you're like, that's not what they told me. And you're stuck for a season of time. And you're just kind of waiting out until your contract's up so that you can get into a new and better contract. And sadly, that's what we've done with the marriage relationship. And God says, I have designed marriage to be a holy covenant. A covenant is a promise or a pledge to another human being that's irrevocable. See, on your wedding day, when you make your vows, you are not professing your love. You are promising future love. Very different. (laughs) On your wedding day, you are professing that come hell or high water, I'm with you. Sickness and health, I'm with you. In plenty or in want, I'm with you. Good times and bad times, I'm with you. You are not simply professing your love. You are promising in that moment, I will love you in the future no matter what the future holds. That is a covenant. And so how do we actually return to marriage being a holy covenant? First, we have to redefine love as a verb. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on this, writes this, divorce confuses the church because marriage confuses. Marriage confuses the church today because love confuses. Love is understood through the lens of romance, personal fulfillment, self-expansion, sexual satisfaction, and whatever the lasting impressions are in Hollywood's movies, relationship TV specials, and novels and books about marriage, love, and relationship. If we want to experience Marriage the way God designed it. First, we have to redefine love as a verb. We define love as a noun. It's a feeling. It's a state of being. And so it's something you fall into and something you fall out of. God defines love as an action, as a choice, as a verb. I love it. my dad's definition of love. He says, love is giving the other person what they need the most. When they deserve it the least at great personal cost. That is the picture of love. Love is giving the other person what they need the most, not what they want the most. When they deserve it the least at great personal cost. At a lot of weddings are read the famous love passage 1 Corinthians thirteen, and it's, you know love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, you. it does not, you know, it's not easily angered, all these sort of things. You know, isn't that so sweet and wonderful and syrupy? No, it's actually really gritty. I mean, think about it. Love is patient when the person is driving you insane. Love is not easily angered, even though you're going like, oh my goodness, what are they doing? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, I got a record of wrong. I've been waiting for you to show up, and so I can tell you our next fight. I got a whole list of record of wrongs, and I'm going to lay it on you. It says, no, no, love is an action that you choose, a decision that you move towards. See, it's less about falling in love and more about growing in love. And until you redefine love as a verb. A holy covenant is almost impossible. And you'll slip or you'll slip. Man, slip and shift. You got to be careful. You could really mess that one up, right? (laughs) You'll slip easily into contractual. When you do this, then I'll give this. And then you go, well, I'm just falling out of love. Secondly, to experience marriage as a holy covenant, we have to engage in the process of oneness. It doesn't happen automatically. See, we just think and isn't it amazing? We spend so much money, time, and energy on the wedding day, and then very little on the marriage. And we're wondering why our marriages are breaking and falling apart. Marriage as a covenant, you have to engage in the process of oneness. Did you notice that Jesus gave three words, leave, be united? I like the old King James, cleave. And then... One flesh, but notice what it before, become one flesh. It, it's this process of becoming. You have to engage in this process of oneness, that it, it's not just going to happen. you're just going to wake up and it's just going to go along. Like you have to work at it, you have to put energy into it. you have to put discipline and focus. In fact, I've heard one person say that, that in a marriage relationship at one time became, you know what was oh, we'll try it again. what once was natural, you now have to be intentional. And for some, you're like, well, come on, really? Yeah, to sustain a love relationship for a lifetime. So what does it look like to engage in the process of oneness? Leave united, one flesh. Leave is this idea of maturing or maturation in life. It's detached from home. That that you're your own person. For many, uh, you know, I look at, uh, I'm just going to pick on young men for a second, Young men who are living at home, playing video games all day long, that's not detaching from home. Where, where you, I, I get it, it's really expensive and a lot of you probably need to live at home just to survive, I get all that, but that you're actually making progress in life. You have a job, you're working towards a career, you're stabilized in life, you're beginning to be stabilize financially, emotionally, relationally, you're actually moving forward. Singles, look for someone who's maturing and don't look for a project. He's cute, but I can, I can make him, I can help him. Now, look for someone who has, has this process of leaving and maturing. Secondly, then united, this idea of covenant, commitment. A covenant, like we said, it's a promise or pledge that's irrevocable. The conditions are found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 39. And it's telling this is the commitment that you're making, the promise that you're making to one another. It's consummated sexually on the wedding night. That God's design for sex and sexual activity is within a covenant relationship to express the most intimate oneness and intimacy. Our culture, we use a sign to declare to everyone else that we're married is this ring. I, I love the picture of a ring because it's, it's used that made out of a pure metal and speaks to the purity of that relationship. It's a circle speaking to the endless nature of that commitment And then there's this becoming one flesh. So from maturing to covenant, then to intimacy. Good way to remember intimacy is in to me see. Like into my heart, you see. In the Genesis narrative, it spoke of Adam and Eve and it said they were naked and unashamed. Unashamed. Like one of the deep longings of our heart is to be known, really. A covenant commitment allows you to experience or sets the stage for intimacy. Intimacy emotionally, intimacy physically, intimacy spiritually. Where you're able to go, This is me all of me, and you're not gonna run away or hide or somehow go, I got out of this. And you know, man, I have unconditionally committed to you, all of you. God's design for marriage is to be a holy covenant, not a contract. So we have to redefine love as a verb and engage in the process of oneness. This is a big, bold vision for marriage One that requires us to adjust our lives to God's word, not have God's word adjusted to our lives. And the Pharisees were struggling with Jesus' vision of marriage. They said, why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're like, okay, that's great. You didn't answer our question. And, and why do we have this? It's in the law. It says we can do this. If that's your vision, if that's how big and that's how permanent it is, then why is there this concession, Jesus? <clears throat> Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. By the way, that's the root problem for all of us in this room. It's the key issue that Jesus is addressing in these short discourses. It's easy er to somehow try to look good on the outside, but it's like. There's a heart issue that I want to address. There's a heart issue that I came to address. There's a heart issue, in fact, that I came to do something about. That's what the cross was about. Not just to, like, clean you up on the outside, to give you a brand new heart. Moses, like, gave you this because you have hard hearts. We have broken hearts. But this was not the way from the beginning. This was not God's design. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's a Greek word again, pornea, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The Pharisees were very concerned about the external, you know, living out the law, especially the Big Ten. Adultery, number seven of the Big Ten. And he's taking them and saying, man, if you engage in this practice that you have been doing, it is the same as And what we see here is divorce was never a part of God's original design for marriage. What we also see here is there are biblical and unbiblical reasons to get divorced. Timothy Keller wrote a great book called The Meaning of Marriage. And um, in it, he unpacks this text, and it's a lengthy but worth it text that I want to read to you. Tim Keller says this, Jesus denies that you can get divorced for any reason. By quoting Genesis 2.24, he confirms that marriage is a covenant. It is not a casual relationship that can be discarded easily. It creates a strong new unity that may only be broken under very serious conditions. But he goes on to say that these serious conditions do exist. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. That means that sometimes human hearts become so hard because of sin that it leads a spouse into a severe violation of the covenant without prospect of repentance and healing. And in such cases, divorce is permitted. The only such violation that Jesus names in this passage is adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds another ground, namely willful desertion. These actions essentially break the covenant vow so thoroughly that as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, the wrong spouse is not bound. He goes on to say, there's much more to say about the Bible and divorce, but this one text is sufficient to show us the wisdom of Jesus on the subject. To allow divorce for most any reason is to hollow out the very concept of covenant and vow. Divorce should not be easy. It should not be our first, second, third, or fourth resort. And yet Jesus knows the depths of human sin and holds out hope for those who find themselves married to someone with an intractably hard heart who has broken his or her vows in this way. Divorce is terribly difficult. It should be, and it should be. But the wrong party should not live in shame. Surprisingly, even God claims to have gone through a divorce. Jeremiah 3 he knows what it's like. Those in the room, gone through it, maybe wondering, okay, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? Well, Jesus talks about sexual immorality, that word pornea, it's the broadest word he could use, infidelity, affair, sexual, emotional, one who has a destructive porn addiction, unrepentant. The Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, when a spouse deserts or leaves you, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional. And in all this, it needs to be processed, I believe, with a real professional counselor and get wisdom and help. The Apostle Paul even talks about, and this isn't in the context of marriage, but he talks about his own past. And for some, you walked in, you came to Jesus later in life. And he talks about his ignorance and unbelief that God looked, that God looked over because of he was ignorant. And for some, you, you just weren't a believer. It doesn't mean that that was the right reason, but he, he says there's grace. You didn't know any better. What are unbiblical grounds for divorce? What are, what are reasons that you go, okay, I'm going to willfully choose this, but you know it's against God's design. Just not happy. Doesn't make me happy. She doesn't make me happy anymore. It's hard. She's a nagger. We fight a lot. We're just sexually incompatible. I just want someone who lights my fire again. The spark's not there. I just feel alone. I don't, I don't love them. I don't love her anymore. I, I, I fell out of love. Actually, I love somebody else now. I, I, and that is our trump card in our society. Well, I'm just in love. Well, if you love them, then it's okay. No, it's not. Covenant trumps I fell in love with someone else in God's economy. What do I do if I realize I had an unbiblical divorce? First, is just simply repent. You look in here and you go like, man, this is where I'm at. God, I recognize. I didn't recognize it. I recognize it now. And then because this is such a deep and weighty and nuanced issue Get wise biblical counsel and how to move forward. For many, I know you might be here and you might be struggling in your marriage. What do I do? Let me give you first a perspective and then a practice. That would be helpful. First, the perspective. I want to just unpack what I call the five stages of a relationship. There are predictable stages or seasons in every single relationship relationship. And when we understand the seasons, it helps us when we're in some of these seasons to be able to move forward. The five stages of relationships, the first stage is the honeymoon stage. Uh, Maybe you're dating, you're engaged. This is the stage where, you know, that you've fallen in love since. Everything is absolutely perfect. Opposites attract. Uh, The differences in them are divine. Isn't it great he's so spontaneous? Isn't it great she's so organized? Isn't it great? And then you move from the honeymoon stage, and who knows how long that lasts. It could last a few months, it could last a few years, to the disillusionment stage, where you begin, instead of the differences being divide, the differences divide. If only they would change. If only they would change. If only they were more kind. If only they were more sensitive. If only they were more thoughtful. If only they were more sexually available. If only they were more organized. If only they were less spontaneous. If only they... And you become disillusioned with your spouse. Which leads to then the misery stage. Welcome to church. Hope you're encouraged. You realize you cannot change them. And so you feel stuck and you feel hopeless. And this is where many today get stuck in a cycle of misery and eventually just get out. Or they do something else, they add kids to the equation. Well, I'm miserable. Maybe I can have another human to love. Fascinating, a longitudinal study reveals that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if simply the couple stays married and do not get a divorce. If you endure the misery stage, move to the awakening stage, where instead of asking, what do they need to change, and how can I change them, you begin to ask, what can I do change. When you realize I can't change anyone, I can't control anyone, I can't force you to do anything, the only person I can change or control is me. And what can I do to change? And in this season in our marriage was powerful and it's the season where we started to go to counseling and therapy and it was Incredibly helpful. And through the, that process, as you begin to ask that question, you begin to experience intimacy in the intimacy stage where you become a team. Remember, it's the process of oneness. It doesn't happen overnight. You leverage your differences to complement and not compete. The perspective, there's these seasons of a relationship. Well, what's the practice? I'm, I'm hurting right now. This is hard. And I want to give you the most powerful relationship principle on the planet. It's mutual submission. That's it. All right, whoa, whoa. Mutual means two, that there's two people, but I'm only one. My spouse doesn't even know Jesus. They're not even here. Guess what? It is so powerful, it can even work with just one. Mutual submission. Ephesians 5:21, the apostle Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit means to leverage one's power, assets, and time for the other's benefit. I'm going to leverage my power. I'm going to leverage my time. I'm going to leverage my energy, for your benefit. That is what it means to submit. And by the way, that's what Jesus did for you. He leveraged his time. He leveraged his energy. He, he leveraged all that he had for your benefits. So what does this look like? Well it looks like first of an approach marked by give, a love, marked by giving, not getting. Back to redefining love as a verb. Our love, let's just feel it. Can we just talk about this? Our love is so much more selfish than we'd like to accept. It's more on us getting than receiving. H- have you ever had anyone do something for you only to try to get something from you? Right? Right? And you realize that, and at first you're thinking they're doing something kind and you're excited, but you realize that all they wanted was something from you. What do you feel? Manipulated. And that's what we do in our marriages and our relationships. It's back to the contractual side of love. I'm gonna do this if you do this for me. Well, somewhere along the line, I think it was a Mr. Clean commercial in our marriage, I saw that the sexiest thing a man could do was clean the dishes. I said, Fantastic, I wanna be sexy. I start cleaning dishes. That's sexy. Apparently, for my wife, it's not. (laughs) See, in my mind, I clean the dishes, and then later that night, something else happens that's romantic in our bedroom, right? That's how I'm thinking about it. I'm cleaning dishes, not because I want to love her, but because I want to get something from her. So I clean the dishes. Did you notice me? No, you didn't. Next day. Clean the dishes. Did you notice me? No, you didn't. Now I'm getting angry that she's not noticing how well I'm cleaning the dishes or reciprocating by giving me love, quote, unquote. A love marked by getting is toxic to a relationship. see, it wasn't love at all. It was all about me. And so the objective is to bring out the best in the other person. Not how can I get from you, but how can I bring out the best in you? Like, how can I make you better? How can I make you more beautiful? How can I enhance you? And the reason we don't want to ask that question is we are afraid we won't get our needs met. And by the way, they'll never meet your needs fully. As long as you're looking to your spouse to meet your needs, you will be consistently disappointed. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The only person on the planet who can meet your needs fully is Jesus. The only person on the planet, he goes, I, if you come to me and out of your relationship with me, then you begin to think about how can I make them, so, make them better? That's why, that's why the motivation is out of honor for Jesus. A love marked by getting, not giving, to bring out the best in another out of your relationship with Jesus. Like I got my tank filled by Jesus so I can love you, even though you're not really lovable right now. I got my tank filled by Jesus and I am just in awe of what he did for me so I can love you, so I can give you in this moment. I wanna try to make you better. I wanna just, I just wanna come alongside and leverage all that I have for your benefit. Why? Because Jesus did that for me. And for some right now, you're thinking, if that's what it means to be married, I don't ever want to get married. That looks hard. That seems painful. It's all out of work. We need, we need a brutally realistic view of marriage, but a wonderful, high, holy view of marriage. And if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. That's how the disciples felt. Notice the disciples' response to this. I love this. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> They're always so honest, it's the best. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. In fact, that's true in this room. Not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. Then he, then he gives an illustration that seems a little out of place, but he'll bring it home for us. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Uh, a eunuch is, um, in the ancient day, especially in the king's court, They needed servants for the harems and for the women of the king's court, but they didn't want them to be uh, sexually touched. And so they would castrate a man to be a eunuch so that he could serve the women and they would have the confidence that there would be no foul play. And there's some that were were born that way. And Jesus recognizes and speaks to the complexity of our sexuality and gender there. And there are others who have been made by it. Now he's going to bring it home and... Tell us why he went down this thought. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Here Jesus, God defines, you know, designated marriage as a holy covenant. That divorce was never a part of the original design And yet, in the conversation, this is so good, especially, think about this, this is 2,000 years ago, and think about our church, 60% single. Jesus elevates singleness as a gift to be steward, not a curse to be endured. Christianity was the first religion in all of human history that said singleness is actually an option and a great option. No society or religion ever endorsed it. Jesus, who is single, right here says, Hey, by the way, singles, you're not incomplete you're not incomplete you're not lacking you're 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 not somehow insignificant because you don't have a significant other he says it's a gift singles honor god in your sexuality why for the sake of the kingdom like like you can leverage your singleness to the kingdom advantage. That's what he's saying. You have a kingdom advantage. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, where he's talking all about marriage, and he says, I wish all of you were as I, because he was single too. He says, married people, they have to be concerned with the affairs of this world. Single people, you can be concerned with the affairs of God. Like in this room, there's the majority who have a kingdom advantage to make an incredible impact. If you would stop wasting your singleness, if you would stop wasting your singleness searching for the right person and start becoming the right person, If you stop kind of hunting, I mean, some of you are like, I'm coming to this church because that guy or that girl, we're talking on marriage. I hope it's top of mind, and maybe they notice me. And you just begin to go, no, I have an advantage to be used by God in a way. By the way, singles, you may not know this. Silicon Valley, I know you don't feel this, but you have more time. I probably needed an amen from a single person, but... You have more energy. You have more flexibility. Just imagine. Just imagine what God would want to do in and through your life if instead of worrying about, hey, do I need to get on this app to find somebody? I just began to put all my energy, all my focus into Jesus and his kingdom. And what would that look like? And that he wants to use your life in ways that would blow you away. If you just wouldn't waste your singleness. If you wouldn't spend it all on yourself but you would view it in giving yourself for the sake of others. As you stand with me, we're going to close. I'm going to invite the band to to come lead. I don't know where you're landing this morning. We hit a lot, honestly. What I love about the song we're about to sing, yes and amen, like he's faithful. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he quotes an ancient song that was sung by the church. And one of the lines goes this way. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That wherever you're at in this moment, whatever you're going through, and some of you just feel like, man, I'm faithless. It's talking about relationships. It's talking about the past. And I'm bringing all this stuff in it. And you have a God who is faithful and will meet you right where you're at. And if you just cry, here I am, God. It's just me. It's all of me. And he says, I'll take all of you, and I'll meet you right where you are. Let's sing.